Chris Wendelkin, and this is On the Line, my NBA podcast where I talk to friends of mine living around the country about all things hoops. We do some NBA deep dives, some drafts, some news and notes from around the league. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new to the show, you can tweet at me at OnTheLine underscore pod. You can email me anything you want about your, your real-life team, your thoughts on the show, questions about your fantasy squad at OnTheLinePod at gmail.com. We are live. We have a website. Uh, visit that, www.OnTheLinePodcast.com. That's OnTheLinePodcast.com. Maybe dive into a deep dive, find an old draft. Uh, it's all up there. And last, if you could please rate, review, subscribe to the show in Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify. That's a new one or wherever you get podcasts. I greatly appreciate it. All right, guys, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. Hope everyone's having a uh, great start to 2019. Hope everyone had a happy and healthy holiday. The Seattle Supersonics are a team that I've been enamored with and curious about for a while. Growing up in the Northeast, the Sonics were a team that I loved watching on TV growing up between the incredible jerseys and the excitement of high-flying guys like Sean Kemp catching lobs from Gary Payton, the rabid fans, guys like Sam Perkins and Detlef Schrempf, and and Nate McMillan launching deep from three. As a Knicks fan growing up in New York in the mid-90s, the Seattle Supersonics were an intoxicating exciting hope as a potential foil to the indestructible Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls. But something happened, of course, with the Sonics. Well, a lot of things happened, I should say. A series of events conspired. There was mismanagement, and there were contract disputes, and there were personal woes. However, while the Sonics never totally put it together on the court, while they never got over the hump... What happened to the team and the organization and the fan base off the court ultimately proved somehow even more tragic. What I failed to realize before sitting down for this podcast would escape me before I got together and talked with my friend Jeremy, a native Seattleite, was that the Sonics were actually a metaphor for a city. The Sonics paralleled and mirrored a series of heartbreaking losses the Pacific Northwest suffered throughout the 90s and 2000s. The loss of basketball in Seattle is unconscionable. It's impossible to me now, even as we finished recording this podcast, to accept and try to understand how the city of Seattle does not have professional basketball. So here's to hoping that trying to make sense of a cruel history helps right or wrong and maybe even paves a way for a new basketball team in the state of Washington. These are the Seattle Supersonics. This is part one, and this is on the line. It is late Thursday night. Seattle native Jeremy Engdahl Johnson is on the line. His Seattle Seahawks are heading into the wild card game this weekend against the Dallas Cowboys. I'm happy to say I'm actually going to the game. No. Yes. You're not. Yes. You're going to the game? Gratuitous. Gratuitous. What? But, uh, you know, I, I've got a Chris, new Chris Carson jersey, and it is oh one, my God. one and oh in appearances, and I hope I don't jinx myself. Wait, wait, wait. But, so we didn't even discuss this. No. So wait, you were were just home in Seattle for the holidays. Yes. You came back to New York uh, like the New other Year's day. Right? day. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, and you went to the last game of the season in Seattle, right? Well, it wasn't the last game of the season, but it was okay. the, uh, the the big game. The big game. The, the Chiefs versus okay. Seahawks yeah. In, yeah. in Seattle. In Seattle. Yeah. And so when did you, like, when did you purchase this ticket against the, for, the, for the Cowboys game on Saturday? A few days ago. Okay. So you yeah. just made, like, a split-second decision. I have good, like you know, friendly agnostic friends yeah. in Dallas who mm-hmm. will not hold it against me. Um, they're actually wow. Chiefs fans, so they may hold it against oh, me. Oh, wow. But I, we're, we're going to go and go to the game. And okay. Yeah, we'll see what happens. So the game's in Dallas. It's in Dallas. It's going to be a highly hostile environment. Holy smokes. And how, like, how does one get a playoff ticket? Is it you just go on StubHub and that, yeah, it's like internet, that simple? The internet yeah. is an amazing thing. And are you going with a friend? Or are you flying solo? Yeah, the Chiefs fan. So the he may, Ch- he oh may knife God. me. Through, but we'll oh see what my god and where are you guys sitting we're sitting in okay seats okay seats so, okay okay yeah. i i made sure that i my you know I'm, i was facing the door yeah. so that i wouldn't get you know I, I there's gonna be a lot of adversaries there and what is the move what is the move when you walk into an environment like this is it do you wear so you're going to be wearing a chris carson jersey Yes. Wow. Uh, and he is a ninja, so I hope that they think <laughs> that I am also a ninja. I am not. Uh, fortunately, this is not airing until Monday yes. because uh, it will have already happened by then. Sure. So, so, God, we are praying for your life. Yeah. We instead, you're going to be airing the story about how I got like yeah. you know, shivved at Knifed. the, at the yeah. cowboy game. <laughs> All right. So Jerry tell Jones me. Did it. Tell me. Uh, so this is going to be coming out on Monday. This, the Seahawks and the Cowboys play on Saturday night. What needs to happen on Saturday for the Seahawks to get a W? against the Cowboys. Give give me the the 2 second uh you know, the 10 second recipe for how they how they beat the Cowboys. Uh, I, yeah, I think that's probably two things. It's like can you can you run the ball and run the ball. so it comes yeah. down to Carson. Chris Carson yeah. and uh and Russell's going to make his plays. Yeah. The other thing is run defense and yeah. I mean cuz Zeke is probably the best back in the league. So yeah. you got to you got to deal with that and you can't have Dak yeah. doing, you know, checkdowns to him all day and Jeez. you know. So it's but they they've figured out how to slow a lot of people down. Yeah. So it's it's not the statistically best defense, but it's an interesting defense in its ability to get results. Yeah. Who's favored? I think the Cowboys are favored. I yeah. Think it's two and a half, maybe. Two and a half. Okay. Yeah. When you flying down? Tomorrow. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Friday morning. Uh, oh boy. All right. So Jeremy, we are talking today about uh, a topic, a team, a set of memories here that's very near and dear to your heart, and that's your your hometown. Seattle Supersonics, formerly of the NBA. Um, you know, the Sonics are a team that I have really wanted to, to, to discuss and try to understand for a while. And to be honest with you, growing up in the Northeast, I grew up in New York. The Pacific Northwest always seemed like this, like, magical place, millions of miles away, you know, like top, top corner of the country. And, um, you know, I loved watching the Sonics growing up playing on TV. And by the way, I'm I, I love the New York perspective on Seattle. Really? Because when I moved here, and I think it was it was 2009, yeah. beginning of 2009, uh, everyone thought when I they were like, "Where are you from?" And I'd say uh-huh. Seattle, and it was like, "Oh, you're from <laughs> Shangri La." <laughs> yeah, it is. It is far away, but it's not that far away. It just seemed like just like when you look on the map, it just like it's that top corner. You know what I mean? It's like it just it. I, I, that was my impression of it as a kid, um, and I loved watching those teams grow, grow growing up. You know, duking it out in the Western Conference against Olajuwon and the Rockets, and Malone and Stockton and the Jazz and Barkley's Suns. And I just remember um, 
those home games for the Sonics, they were always really cool, not just because the team had this fun style of play, but also because those fans were so, so rabid and so crazy. And those home games were just electric. And, um, and then when the, fe- when, when the team fell into a decline and the new ownership group came in and took over and eventually moved the team to Oklahoma City, I'll be honest, I didn't really understand like what was happening or why it was happening. And I vaguely remember like Commissioner Stern on TV and some politicians and a bunch of rich guys and everyone's pointing at each other and no one's taking any blame and everyone's kind of frowning and it's very sad sack. And I never really understood how that team and how that city could be abandoned by the NBA. And it it never made any sense to me and it still doesn't make any sense to me. So when I started putting this podcast together, I set out to kind of try to like understand a little bit about like why, like why that happened, how it happened. I scoured the internet reading tons of different newspaper articles and, and op-eds and I, I rewatched old games and player profiles and I watched the incredible, highly recommended documentary made in 2009 called Sonic Skate Requiem for a Team by Jason Reed. Um, to anyone listening in the audience, uh, please, please, please watch this film if you haven't seen it already. It's, uh, it's, it's available to stream for free online. To they, they made it available for free to help promote awareness of what happened with the team and how ownership uh, came in and basically stole them and, and tried to forge this like grassroots movement among fans. Won several awards. It's, it's screened at tons of festivals. So I highly, highly recommend and encourage watching that film. Go find it, Sonicsgate, Google it. It was a huge assistance in my research process. But so, Jeremy, for starters, you know, uh, as, a, as a Seattleite, the Sonics, the Mariners, the Seahawks, from your uh, putting your fan preference aside, does it feel like, you know, looking back on your childhood and your, your fan experience in Seattle, was there a clear like pecking order of those teams among Seattle fans? Is it, is it a football first town? Is it a baseball first town? Was it a basketball town at any point? It's complicated when you ask that. And clearly the team that had preeminence and that was worth watching as I was growing up were the Sonics. Yeah. So what comes to mind here which was kind of the beginning of my Seattle sports consciousness was I I went to get some new shoes because Uh I was a dork and I was in band and I needed some black shoes. And so I went to the Bon Marche and I got some shoes and with the shoes came a pair of Seattle supersonic tickets. And it was the 86, 87 season. And the reason that the tickets were available with the shoes is because they were playing in the kingdom. And they had played for the Kingdom for a time. They actually played there when they won the championship. And they'd set some attendance records there. It was like 22,000 people at yeah. the time. Uh, but it kind of it quickly became clear it was less than optimal place to see a game. And, and at my age, I think I was nine, nine years old or something, yeah. uh, it was very clear it was a less than optimal place to watch a game because we were way up there. And we were playing the Boston Celtics, who'd won the championship the year before. Yeah. And I could not always tell the difference between Larry Bird and Brad Lojas. <laughs> like, it was like there's two big, tall white guys down there. I can tell Kevin McHale because he's the vampire looking Bold one. wearing kind of green and white. Yeah, yeah, but it was just like, you know, you couldn't tell the difference. And, and I was just like, this is the worst place possible to watch a game. And I think it's important to talk about the fan environment. Yeah. Because really, what. Do you want to do more than anything as a basketball owner? Hopefully, you want to make the people who are there feel good. 
And the kingdom experience may have felt good for a few years when you're winning championships. It's great. Right. But it was kind of this this uh, sidecar uh, venue that they would use once Key Arena kind of became viable. Uh, and and we'll, I think we should talk more about Key Arena in yeah. the future. I don't know if we want to go go there quite yet. But but that was my early experience was was seeing the Sonics from at the kingdom at the kingdom from the nose. And, and to be clear for uh, younger fans in the audience who are listening, who maybe don't know the kingdom is a, is a baseball stadium, correct? That's where the Mariners played, right? The, the Seahawks also played there. Oh wow. It was the multi-sport stadium. It the, was the thing that they figured retractable out. Retractable roof. Uh, it, no, no, no. It was, it, it looked like if you took like a potato and you <laughs> kind of jammed it into the ground yeah, uh, and then like kind of, stuck some things on top of it that's what it was <laughs> well i would imagine that would not be the the best place to watch a game well it was i mean to its credit it was right down there in the middle of things it was yeah. the intersection of two highways yeah. that's where they still have this seahawk stadium it's where they still have safeco field i think they're changing the name to some other uh, soulless corporate you know, yeah. corporate thing <laughs> um, but it's all still down there because that was a good place to have it it yeah. was just it, it, it was a monolith. Thinking back on your consciousness and your fan experience, this, the Sonics were very much on the forefront of, of, of uh, you know, sports importance in your childhood. And I, I guess, yeah, thinking back on it, the, the, the Seahawks were kind of struggling, right? The Mariners had their ups the, and their the downs. The Seahawks, I mean, we were in kind of in the, um, you know, Chuck Knox, like, okay. you know, ground Chuck stage. Right. My, you know, my grandpa had season tickets for, for years and years. He yeah. worked at Boeing. Yeah. And uh, loved the team, and and so like we had a lot to root for there. Yeah, we had Largent playing, and we had Dave Craig fumbling a historical number of times. And right. We had various other things that were you know fun to do, but um, the Sonics were the only one that had that pedigree of a championship. And even during the '80s, and I think we'll talk more about kind of all of this. Um, they may not have been top seed in any division. You know that year when I went and saw them play with the tickets I got from the shoes. Uh, that year, they had three guys score more than twenty points per game. Yeah, and it was it was an interesting team. I mean, so they they had, uh, you know, they had Dale Ellis. That's right. They had Xavier McDaniel, and they had Tom Chambers. And I think we should talk more about each of those guys as we move further into this because Absolutely. all those guys became very significant in what they built in the 90s. All right, so let's give a little uh, broad overview, you know, a little historical context. So the, uh, the the Seattle Supersonics played in the Pacific and Northwest divisions of the Western Conference from 1967 till 2008. In 2007-2008, oh, at the season's end, uh, the team was relocated to Oklahoma City and they were renamed the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, so Jeremy, I, I, I want to kind of look and talk about the franchise's uh, history over a period of like eras, basically um, chapters, whatever you want to call it. And from, you know, from my research, it seems like the cleanest, simplest way to talk about the periods of um, Sonic's history is, you know, the championship years from, from 75 to 83. Um, there was uh, then the period of, of, of decline and some struggles from like 83 to 89 and then from 89 to 98, we'll call that loosely the, the Peyton and Kemp era. And then um, 
After that, we'll we'll talk about you know Kemp being traded, and then after that, we'll talk '98 to 2008, basically the struggles, drafting Kevin Durant, and eventually moving to Oklahoma City, and kind of how that happened, the ownership heist, how how exactly all that went down. So let's start let's start kind of at the beginning, which is you the know, beginning of our 35 year tenure. Yes, let's uh, do it. Some let's of what go. you're alluding to. So. Let's start with the championship years here. So one time Sonics player coach Lenny Wilkins is brought back to Seattle in uh, in 1977-78 as a full-time head coach. And um, the team makes it all the way to the finals. Uh, they eventually lose to the Washington Bullets in seven games. Uh, the team is basically, you know, the, the next year they keep the, the roster intact. And uh, they returned to the finals that year in '77 uh, in '78 '79, and they de- de- defeat the Bullets in five games for the franchise's only NBA title. Uh, the, the team has guys like Gus Williams, Finals MVP Dennis Johnson, Jack Sikma, John Johnson, Lonnie Shelton, Fred Brown, and Paul Silas. Uh, any of these guys have any sort of particular importance to you? Uh, any any sort of memories of these uh, of these guys from the late seventies, early eighties? Well, I, th- I think it's it's interesting to think about how this particular championship team had uh it's like a tree and there were various different arms to the tree yeah and various different branches from there and so i i think i can speak to a couple of different branches that are potentially interesting yeah and go ahead you mentioned among other people uh fred brown fred brown downtown fred brown <laughs> tell us about him and so uh he was a prolific shooter this is before they had invented the three-point shot yeah and so fred brown has like scored about as many baskets as anyone in Seattle supersonic history. And he didn't have the benefit of the three point shot. So you look at his points and they're prolific, but you can imagine what it might have been. So I happened to go to high school with his three sons. Oh, wow. And they were all incredible shooters and they had invented the three point line at this point. Mm -hmm. And it was used to various success largely enormous success. But so he had three sons, uh, Fred Jr., who mm-hmm. ended up going to Iowa, who was a, a senior when I was a freshman. Uh, Tarek, who was my age, who went to Oregon. Uh, we won the uh, state championship in 93 behind him and another prolific three-point shooter. It was friggin' awesome. And then the younger brother, uh, Brian, nicknamed Booty Brown, <laughs> who ended up going to the University of Washington. Wow. Uh, who had a insane appearance in the Washington State playoffs uh, that ended up leading our team to winning in 97. So, like, this family is just... Fred Brown's kids all... Fred Brown's kids, they were all... D1 college players. Yeah, they're all D1 players. And there was another guy on the championship team named, who you didn't mention, named Slick Watts. Uh Uh-huh. And his son, Donald Watts, was also our age. And was a complete and total baller. Like, they're like, you know, soaring above and dunking in games. Sure. So Donald was more of like the interior. He was more kind of a LeBron sort of player. Okay. Whereas Tarek was more of a Steph sort of player. And they would just duel. It's like, and I'm, in the, I'm a dork in the band. Yeah. Like, I'm playing Go Am I on my trumpet. <laughs> so I'm just enjoying this whole thing. But it was phenomenal. And I think it's important to point out that there was so much basketball talent that went through Seattle while the Sonics were there. Let me give you a sampling. Yeah. Jason Terry went to Franklin High. 
Nate Robinson, went to Rainier Beach, then he moved to California, then back to the University of Washington. Jamal Crawford went to Rainier Beach. Michael Dickerson, his short but awesome NBA career, went to Federal Way, kind of north of town. Isaiah Thomas, not the one who went to Indiana, but Uh. the more recent, uh, was from Tacoma, even further south. Doug Christie, Rainier Beach, a lot of Rainier Beach people. Uh, Brandon Roy went to Garfield and UW. Spencer Haas, Seattle Prep and UW. And then going way back, we got people like James Edwards, who was a real post presence with a you know huge career. He went to Roosevelt. But all those people, like they all learned basketball watching the Sonics. Watching play. the Sonics. Maybe not. Maybe not James Edwards. I I, <laughs> I, I may have blown that. But um, but everybody else was was there. I mean, and it was yeah. it's a basketball hotbed. Yeah. Well, I know Jamal Crawford still has a tournament that happens every summer in Seattle. It's an invitational and all he gets all these NBA guys to go back and play. And it's like people in Seattle love hoop. And um, and, and I think hoop loves Seattle, like the, the love fest around, you know, the last game there yeah. and like. You know, there was there was a thing earlier this year where you know, everybody got to feel really good about themselves because yeah. they were all there. Yeah, um, it's it's there. All right, so then we'll move on to the um, chapter of basically 1983 to 1989. Uh, this is post title run here. So the, the 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 Sonics remain competitive through the late 70s and the early 80s. Um, they make a third trip to the Western Conference Finals in 1979, uh, 1980, but eventually. They slip into a period of decline. The team was sold to Barry Ackerley in 1983. He was definitely the best owner the team ever had. They didn't have that many owners. Yeah. And they got pretty bad pretty fast after that. Yeah. Uh, but he he was the person who presided over all of the success. Yeah. And, it, and gets a lot of credit. He was a media mogul. He owned a bunch of radio stations in like New York. Okay. It wasn't it wasn't like maybe around here. It was like Syracuse and okay. other places. And Do we know if Barry Ackerley was oh, was from Seattle, Washington? He was not. He yeah. was a transplant. Yeah. And I, I believe he died there. Yes. Uh, but I take comfort in Barry Ackerley because he was a good Seattleite. And if you're from Seattle, but maybe not totally from Seattle. Like if say you were like me where you were born in California, but then you moved to Seattle as a young child and you lived there your whole life. You claim it. I claim it, but people in Seattle don't want to give that to you. Gotcha. So all my friends who are super particular about how you're not really a Seattleite, let's just point out that Barry Ackerley is not, but he was a good, good Seattleite. Barry Ackerley presides over the team during the the 80s, the, the period of the mid-80s here. There was a period of decline. But Mid-80s you, you, you would, you, through... Uh, into Kemp and Payton. Yeah. Um, there were some highlights. Uh, we should talk about them. Ch- Tom Chambers was the All-Star Game MVP. Um, and in, that, that game was in Seattle, by the way. But there you go. Uh, in 1987, the team made the Western Conference Finals despite a sub 500 record. They made their they made the second round of the playoffs in 1989. You know, there's not there aren't a ton of highlights, but I feel like maybe you can talk to some of the you know small victories. Xavier McDaniel uh, comes to the team. Dale Ellis arrives. Right. Tom Chambers is a highlight. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the big three. Yeah. And and that 86 87 season where I I had gotten the tickets through the shoes. Uh, it was it was a great season because all three 
averaged over 20 points. Um, Chambers was exciting. You know, he'd been drafted out of Utah by the San Diego Clippers uh, back in 1981. And, you know, but he was a prolific scorer. He was, you know, I was going to say, do you you remember watching him play? Yeah. How would you describe his game for someone listening to the podcast that never saw him play? I, he was like a big white power forward <laughs> yeah. who could hit some shots. Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm sorry to be stereotypical. But no, 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 no. That's about what he was. Like had a had a post game, right? Yeah, but he had he had some fluidity too. You know, he had some some moves down in the post. Yeah, and, and, you know, he could do a lot. Yeah. Um. So he was he, he was a player, and yeah. and we'll get to the point where he was the. F- the NBA's first unrestricted free agent. Oh wow! Yeah, like a few years later, um, and that really that was a big deal. You know, it's funny. We were talking before off off the air about uh, you said you felt like the Sonics were a good story, a, uh, a good parallel for like what has happened to today's NBA, and just even talking about Tom Chambers, and I, you know, I was like, how would you describe his game? It's interesting because the game, frankly, today, in my personal opinion, has become very simplified. It's very much like shoot three pointers <laughs> or dunk. Yeah. And everything else is an inefficient shot. You know, layups and dunks, everything, you know, an 18 foot shot is inefficient. No one, no one, no one plays in the post anymore. There's no such thing as a power forward. You know, Marcus Aldridge is like the, is an aberration. You know, he's a guy that like you dump the ball into in the post and he, and he shoots, you know, 14 foot jumpers or 18 foot jumpers. Um, but back, back in the mid eighties, a guy like Tom Chambers, that, that was a, a real guy. Like you could throw the ball in the post to so on. And you know, that, that's how players worked. Um, it wasn't just threes and layups. So anyways, well, and I think it's telling, and let's just go ahead and do this, but, uh, he, he was, as I said, the NBA's first unrestricted free agent. Free agent yeah. And he was, uh, like they were, they were negotiating the collective bargaining agreement, right. and what they arrived at was that, in order to be an unrestricted free agent, you had to have seven years of experience and at least two contracts. And as they were signing this deal, apparently, the, as the legend goes, Jerry Colangelo, who was with the Suns, he turned to Barry Ackerley, who was sitting right next to him, and he said, "You're going to lose Chambers." And he didn't say that thinking we're going to take him. He said that thinking someone is going to take him because we sure are going after him and other people are going to go after him too. Yeah. So it was the first ever unrestricted free agent acquisition bidding war. Wow. Yeah. And, and what ended up happening was the terms were not released, but the Sonics offered – uh, I think they offered four years and five million dollars, and that's not four times five. That's four years, five million dollars. Because the guy had made nine hundred fifty-six thousand dollars the year before. So let's just put contracts in perspective here. First unrestricted free agent ever made somewhere north, never disclosed, uh-huh. of four years, five million dollars. Five. Total million dollars. Yes. Yeah, times have changed. Times have changed. This was the first of the big three things. The other two of the big three, they turned into other assets. But this one, they were like, we're going to pass. Just let them walk. Yep. This was significant. There are two other big players here. One was Xavier McDaniel, who was a very, very highly branded player who everyone was super into. 
he, for people who never saw him play, he was Draymond Green back in the day. He he was he was a brawler. They're both six seven. Defense first. Defense first. He he scored more than Draymond. He didn't pass as well, but he was he was the similar kind of intangible sort of glue player who pulled everything together. I didn't realize he had this much of an offensive game. Yeah, he was a he he scored points. Holy in cow. fact, when they drafted him out of Wichita State, yeah. he'd been the first player ever to lead the nation in both scoring and rebounding. Wow. Yeah, that's that's remarkable cuz my memory of him as a Nick is mostly as a yeah, defense first kind of enforcer. But damn, look at this. McDaniel had uh more than a handful of 20-point seasons between between the uh, the Supersonics, the Suns, the Knicks, and then eventually the the Celtics and Nets. Wow! Look at that! What a, what a career! Uh, Do you remember him uh, embarrassing Scottie Pippen in the playoffs? Well, as the timeout was called, both clubs going at each other. Michael Jordan and Xavier McDaniel having words. Double technicals were called on McDaniel and Jordan. Let's go to Ahmad Rashad. All right, Marv, yesterday I was speaking with uh, Scotty Pippen, and he's starting to feel the pressure that everybody telling him to step up and be ready to play. He was so focused yesterday that he would not be intimidated, and he said he'll be driving the basket like the Pippen of old, and you can see he's ready to I, play. I think he, he basically emasculated Scotty Pippen to the point that Jordan had to come to Pippen's defense. Like, when he was playing for the Knicks, he was perfect on that team. Yeah, I, he I really mean, was, man. I will always be I a, was a Knicks little... sup- uh, like sympathizer because yeah. of that team. Yeah, he was a special player. He totally fit in with that group. And he was just one of those guys that he floated to a few different teams, but he just had, he had an identity, you know, he really, he was, he was a, he was a force in the league. So the sad postscript for Sonic fans was that the X-Man eventually ended up getting traded to the Suns for Eddie Johnson. Hmm. For whatever reason, players always ended up on the Suns. Yeah. It's not really clear. Chambers was there. He joined him there. It's like, okay, you guys go do your thing. Right. So so that was the second of the tr- like kind of holy trinity of the late 80s. The third was Dale Ellis. He was drafted by the, the Mavericks, ninth overall in 1983. He went there. He did absolutely nothing. And then we traded for him, and he turned into a 20-point-per-game player. Uh, he uh, actually ended up breaking Spencer Haywood's record for points in a season, 88-89. The team was baller. That was the thing. It was like they could they could shoot. They, their offense was amazing. They were like the five seed. Yeah. They weren't great but they were fun. Ellis played for a while. We ended up trading him for Ricky Pierce in 1991. The tide, I think, begins to turn in 1989, and that is with the arrival of a draft pick named Sean Kemp. Now, Kemp is a, uh, he's a fascinating story. He was, he was a high school basketball legend in the state of Indiana. He's a phenom, and for the audience, you know, if you're unfamiliar with Sean Kemp, pull up pull up some of Sean Kemp's high school dunk compilations on YouTube. It's basically like watching grainy video footage of you know Zion Williamson or any of these guys. I mean, this guy could fly. He was he was electric. His dunks were thunderous. Um, you know, some backstory on Kemp that I, that I'll share is he committed actually to playing ball at the University of Kentucky. But he failed to meet, I guess, the minimum uh, standards for the SATs, and so he was forced to miss. I think his... that standard is seven hundred. Okay, he was fe- at he, that time. He was he was forced to miss his freshman year, and according to 
Uh, yeah, that was according to the NCAA's Proposition 48. He had to sit out uh, his freshman year. So Kemp spent a couple of months in, in the state of Kentucky trying to go to classes, but you know he couldn't play ball, and it just it wasn't the right environment for him. He he didn't fit in. It didn't make sense for him. Kemp eventually enrolls at a community college in Texas. Uh, but he can't play basketball there either. So he enrolls in the uh, 1989 NBA draft. The Sonics take him number 17 overall in the first round. Um, Jeremy, what, do you remember Kemp breaking in with the Sonics? Are there any particular memories, especially those early years, the first couple of years with Kemp in the league? Any, anything that pops out in your memory about him and his, uh, his time with the Sonics? Well, I, I remember it was a big gamble. It was the sort of because thing... Of the, because of the uh, ineligibility in college, and he was just... You were looking at, like, high school tape of him, right? Yeah, and most... There were very few players who hadn't played college games. Right. I mean, and, and he wasn't intentionally, like, you know... Yeah. Like uh, Kevin Garnett, you know, no. breaking, breaking the, the way in as the kind of first guy straight out of high school. It just happened that way. Yeah. And there had been a few other people where where that had that had been the case. I'm pretty sure the uh, the first person to ever do it was was Daryl Dawkins, Chocolate Thunder, uh, and and there were a few along the way. There hadn't really been a mainstream way to the NBA from high school, so he w- he was very unusual. Daryl Dawkins was heavily recruited by Division One colleges across the country. He narrowed his choices to Florida State, Kansas, Kentucky, but in a surprise move, Daryl Dawkins opted to directly enter the NBA draft at a high school instead of attending college. He made the decision because he needed to make money to basically support his grandmother and escape poverty. There you go. So went went to Philly, right? Yep. So. So this was unusual, and I think to understand this, you there there may be a few other characters, and I, 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 I love that you're coming at this yes. from a perspective of being, you know, you kind of you saw the product on the court, yes, but there was so much else going on. Please and fill in so many people in the background, and so the the person to talk about when you're talking about Sean Kemp yeah. ending up on the Seattle SuperSonics is Trader Bob Whitsett. <laughs> Right. This he, is the GM. He was the GM. And he was the GM from 1986 to 1994. Right. And he made the bold pick to pick Kemp. Yeah. And it was the first of many, many moves he would make where he was taking a risk on somebody who might have had personality issues. Yeah. He was, uh, I, I will get to the, the details of that. But at the time, it was very risky and it quickly started to look like a really good decision. He later also chose to draft Gary Payton, right. which was more of a no-brainer. Uh, but still, he made those two picks, which yeah. are the critical picks to build this team. By the start of um, by the start of his rookie year in 1989, Kemp was the youngest player in the NBA at 19 years old, and he actually, you know, to to uh, call back here, he quickly became a disciple and uh, a mentee of a wily vet named Xavier McDaniel. And um, so they were buddy-buddy. I I watched a a profile on Kemp, and it it really, he talked um, at length about how the X-Men really took him under his wing and, like, literally just showed him, like, how to live as an adult, like, how to do your laundry. Like, hey, you got to go grocery shopping. You go over there. This is where you should get an apartment. I mean, he really showed this 19-year-old kid how to live because um, Kemp said, like, his mom, his mom told him like, Hey, you're a man now go, go figure it out on your own. I can't help you. Like, this is your thing. And so X-Man was a big part of his life. And then, um, McDaniel was traded 15 games into the 1990, 1991 season. 
Kemp's second year in the NBA. And so McDaniels traded to the Suns, like you mentioned before, and Kemp takes his spot in the starting lineup. And so the student becomes the teacher. And um, at first, you know, it was it was hard for, I think, for Sean Kemp. You know, McDaniel was his best friend on the team. He literally showed him how to, like, manage and live as an adult. And the X-Man was the guy in Kemp's ear to tell him, like, you know, the, the Sonics were his squad now. I, after the trade, they, they, in this documentary I watched, they said that, like, X-Man called up Kemp and was like, this is your team. Like, you, you got to be the man on this team, and it's, it's your show. And to his credit, Sean Kemp really thrived. And, um, you know, like we discussed in last week in the, the episodes that we did on nicknames, playing in Seattle, Kemp earned the nickname The Rain Man. And that was for his emphatic dunks that he laid down on, on, on opponents. So anything else you want to add about those early years, Bob Whitsett, Sean Kemp? Well, I, th- I think you've, you've captured the, the nature of, of Kemp. Um, there were some other characters along the way. Like when they knew that they were getting rid of Chambers, they went and traded for new power forward named Michael Cage. That's right. Do you remember that yes. name? Yes. Yeah. And we got we got him from the LA Clippers in '88. Um, he was awesome in a lot of ways. He was nicknamed John Shaft. That's right. Because that's what he looked like. And he used to do this super weird infomercial for uh, the Juice Man. And he became synonymous for the Juice Man. It was this strange infomercial. And it was the sort of thing that made everyone feel a little odd. And in retrospect, it was like, oh, this guy is instantly going to sell out. Like, that's what we kind of figured out later on. Um, But at the time, it seemed quaint and kind of cute. Uh, he was a bit of a human anachronism. He was, I think he set the, the record for most three-point attempts without ever making one. Wow. Uh, 0 for 25. That's determination. Yeah, that, that is, that is a, a human anachronism, if ever there was one. But in the end, he kind of turned out to be a traitor. Uh, he went and became a commentator for the Thunder. So Michael Cage... I'm never buying a juice, man. So a couple fun names from that squad uh, from those early years. Dana Barros, you mentioned, you mentioned Michael Cage. Quinton Daly, Dale Ellis, Jim Farmer, Avery Johnson, Steve Johnson, Sean Kemp, X-Man, Xavier McDaniel, Derek McKee, Nate McMillan, um, Scott Mentz, Olden Polonese, Brad Sellers, and Sedale Threat. Is that is that my saying that name correctly? I think, I think it was Threet. Threet, <laughs> great. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna. I, I I actually think this is now a good time to go through um, how volatile our roster was. Great. And I, I mentioned Trader Bob Witsit, and you know one of the things about him was he never shied away from taking people with colorful pass. And Kemp was a great example. He took a risk. I think the risk clearly paid off. But he was somebody who did a lot of things later on. Yeah. And I just, you know, we're, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. But after he left the Sonics, he yeah. was the GM of the, the Portland Port- Trailblazers. And he, uh, he traded for Sean Kemp, like right. post-drug yeah. problems. Um, Isaiah Ryder, he That's traded right. for him. He traded for Rashid, Rashid. Wallace. Yeah. 
Uh, he signed Kenny Anderson as a free agent. So he must have also brought over Damon Stoudemire, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, like also, jail, he, he oversaw the Jailblazers. Yeah, he yeah. oversaw the Jailblazers. And he, he even Zach acquired sex, sex offender Reuben Patterson. Right, Reuben Patterson. The self-acclaimed Kobe stopper. Scotty, he brought Scotty Pippen in. He, brought, uh, Zach Ra- he drafted Zach Randolph. Um, so he completely jumped the shark later on. Yeah. And then he went to work so he, for the he Seahawks. Doubled, he doubled he down. went to work for the Seahawks after this. He doubled down on the strategy of <laughs> your personality is of no concern to me. Yeah, he Just had talent it. Grab. He had it better the first time through. Yeah, but but what's interesting here is though he didn't earn his his name as Trader Bob for no reason. Um, under his watch, I mean, and you just look at these are the insignificant trades yeah. that precede Kemp and Peyton getting trade. Yeah, so like you know. We're still at Trader Bob. 99-01 season, he trades X-Men and Dale Ellis for Ricky Pierce and Eddie Johnson. And those two guys were actually really solid. They, they were good jump shooters. Yep. They would be among the league leaders in, in free throw percentage. They were super solid. And they provided the offense while Kemp and Peyton kind of emerged. In 93, he starts trading them. He trades Eddie Johnson, who at the time had the league-leading uh, free throw percentage, and the guy you said before, Dana Barros, yeah. who was like third in the league in three-point percentage, uh, they traded him for a guy named Kendall Gill. Of course. Out of the University of Illinois, who had been an all-rookie player and who got really upset on the Charlotte Hornets because LJ and Alonzo Mourning had taken over the team. That's right. So they go in to get him, and that seems like a perfect fit. That same year, they trade Derek McKee, who they got out of uh, University of Alabama. Okay. You know, back in the 80s, yep. who was kind of a, a glue sort of player yep. for Detlef Schrempf, who was from the University of Washington. Oh, boy. So they're just, it's just churn, 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 churn. And then in 94, Witsit resigns, or he didn't resign. I think he was just like not offered a contract. He's replaced by Wally Walker, right? who needs to prove himself. He goes out and he trades Ricky Pierce for Cernus Marcellonis. In 95, they trade Sarunas for Frank Burkowski, who had ended up being a key player against the Bulls. He was the anti-Rodman guy. He, that was a great trade. That was brilliant. That, that year, before that year, also they traded Gill back to Charlotte for Hersey yeah. Hawkins. They yeah. made like four trades with Charlotte. Yeah. They never got Del Curry mm. out of the whole thing. Yeah. But they got every other Charlotte guard. And this was before we started trading any stars. So that's that same year that we were talking about, 1990, 1991. Um, of course, at this point, the Sonics draft, Trader, uh, Trader, Trader Bob brings in uh, Gary Payton with the number two overall pick out of Oregon State. And so this guy is a legend of the Pacific Northwest. I read the Sonics management actually had Sean Kemp scout Gary Payton in college. Trader Bob, your guy, had Kemp watch game tape of Gary Payton and ask how he felt about the prospect of playing with this guy with the glove. And so, of course, Kemp was like, yeah, do it. Let's do it. Naturally, they hit it off. Um, It was a marriage made in heaven. They became one of the more... Uh, lethal, potent tandems in the NBA. They earned the nickname uh, Sonic Boom, and that was for the way they lobbed alley-oops, running up and down the court, playing in transition. Um, Now that we've gotten to that point, can we go back to pre-draft? Sure. Because I was an Oregon Duck fan. Okay. I hated Gary Payton. Hated Gary Payton. I hated his guts. He was the mouthy guy on Oregon State who wasn't as good as he seemed. 
And that year, there had been a fascinating run yeah. to the Final Four. And a team named Loyola Marymount had done quite well. They had made it to the Elite Eight. Hank Gathers. Hank Gathers yeah. drops dead. Yeah. And they have a player named Bo Kimball. Bo Kimball. Who's shooting left-handed free throws. Right. Throughout the tournament, I think I think they lost in the the I think they lost in the Elite Eight. So it was a question: Are the Sonics going to take Gary Payton, or are they going to take Bo Kimball? And I wanted to see them take Bo Kimball because Bo Kimball was a hero, and I was ten. Of course, and like I think about that and I think about how wrong I was I was permanently wrong I like I don't claim to be a scout I leave that to other people that's crazy but Wait, it was it Bo was a Kimble, question like there was a question at one point whether to take Gary Payton or Bo Kimball there was a question wow that's fascinating that is fascinating alright so considered by some to be the most complete point guard of all time Gary Payton was a nine time all star he was a nine-time All-NBA selection. He was the 1996 Defensive Player of the Year. He eventually won a championship uh, in 2006 with the Miami Heat as a role player. A couple of things I, I love and want to mention about this guy, providing a little color here. Gary Payton was an absolute dog on defense. I mean, the guy loved to trash talk. The glove. Um, the glove. So, so much so, he loved to trash talk so much so that over the course of his 17-year career, he racked up the third most technical fouls uh, of all time behind only Jerry Sloan and Rasheed Wallace. (laughs) How is that the list? I mean, that's... Jerry Sloan, Rasheed Wallace, and Gary Payton. That is a salty, salty... Jerry Sloan? Jerry Sloan. Um, Respect. Yeah. I mean, so frankly, uh, Peyton, Gary Peyton was, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the name Draymond Green before. Peyton was kind of like a Draymond Green or a Rashid Wallace in the body of a point guard. Well, um, and, and one of the things I've, I've thought about, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about the aftermath and what this all meant for Seattle, but Peyton was the, the hero sports celebrity we needed to prepare us for Richard Sherman. <laughs> yeah i love that there is a legacy of like chatter right yeah. like and we're way better when richard sherman or gary payton are leading the way as opposed to dan wilson a little side rant about the seattle mariners who always want to be family friendly and yeah. everything's really great it's right. like you go into opposing stadiums and they say go f yourself like yeah. <laughs> you know it's i i don't want to be nice as a fan i want to win and i want to intimidate yeah i mean gary payton definitely brought that ethos to the court i mean payton played the first 12 and a half years of his career with the sonics in seattle every time we walk around you got to think about how you can get better how your game is i don't think about how many how many hours i gotta spend i gotta think about it what I got to do to get myself better. It's basically no hours. It's all the time. I'm always thinking like that in my mind. Basketball, basketball. It's my life. Uh, this is what I do. As, as we talk about Gary Payton and Sean Kemp and this kind of rebuilding and re- revitalization of the team during the late 80s, early 90s, it's probably important to talk about some of the other players that they drafted and cultivated and sort of the core that they built out around these guys. And I know one of the real staples of that 
of that rebuilding process was a certain uh, a, a point guard named Nate McMillan. Yes, Is Mr. This, Sonic. Mr. Sonic. Can you tell us a little bit about this guy? So he was drafted in 86. I think it was like 30th overall out of uh-huh. NC State. And he only ever played for the Sonics throughout his entire career. He played through uh, from 1986 to, to 1998. Uh, that's how he earned the nickname Mr. Sonic. After that, he went and became an assistant coach, and then he became head coach. And he ended up, when he left for the Portland Trailblazers, you kind of knew it was the beginning of the end. It was, and we'll get to all this later on, but mm-hmm. it was when Mr. Sonic leaves, you know you got a problem. But as a player, he was amazing. He He averaged... Not a lot of points. He averaged about six points, averaged about six assists, uh, and about two steals a game for his career. But he was a baller. He was one of the best defensive players in the league. Yeah. He was kind of hitting his peak in like 93, 94. He led the league in steals. This is like peak Sonic time. In 94, 95, he was second team all defense. There was always an argument about who about who was the better defender on the team, whether it was Peyton or McMillan. Yeah. Like, he was phenomenal. And the interesting thing about him, if you think about team chemistry, was he was there before Peyton. Yeah. And he stepped back, and he was like, okay, you can be lead dog. Yeah. Let's do this together. Yeah. Well, they had the same, they had a similar identity, right? I mean, obviously, there was a higher ceiling with Penn. But, uh, w- w- obviously, there was a higher ceiling with Gary Payton, but it seemed like the fundamentals of what they did was like they were defensive um, point guards who were like ball distributors, right? Yes, but McMillan never had Peyton's upside as an offensive Offensive player. Offensive player, sure, no doubt, no doubt. It was different. He he had a mind for the game, though, uh, to the point that we're recording this. I think he was named coach of the month like last month. That's right. Now he's currently the coach of the Indiana Pacers. Yes. Yeah. So he's still doing it, and... You know, there, there's a version of all this yeah. where he never left the Sonics oh. and he was the coach the whole time through and he's still the coach. Like he should have been there forever. Yeah, yeah, he should have. While we are on the topic of uh, these early 90s uh, Sonics teams, the rebuilding process, kind of uh, the sea change, we're talking about defense and culture. It's probably important at this point we talk about um, the influence and the importance of George Carl, who arrived as head coach in 1992. Now, George Carl um, believed in playing fast, pushing the pace, right? He wanted to attack the rim off the dribble. And while a lot of guys said they liked this idea in theory, um, you know, if you're not in adequate shape, if you're not conditioned, um, you know, you're gonna probably butt heads with George Carl. And he said, one one of the things George Carl was famous for saying is he didn't like to coach effort. So he basically wanted his guys to bust their ass. Yeah. And And we played defense like crazy people. That's right. We ran all over the court. That's right. And we were, we out hustled. I began talking there about offense and, uh, you know, towards the, the latter half of his career, Carl really, especially with, I, I think of those Denver Nuggets teams he really became synonymous with being this like very innovative offensive coach. But during his early days with the the Sonics, he really was a defensive minded, gritty coach. His Sonics teams became known for their toughness and their pride on the defensive end of the ball. And so, um, Peyton McMillan Kemp, these guys were a natural fit, 
in that regard. He also had the nickname of uh, Furious George. He had a very prickly demeanor. He was known for going at players, going at the media, through the media. He wasn't afraid to call people out. Kendall Gill is a prime example of that. Jeremy, do you remember, what What do you remember about George Carl's reputation? Uh, was he especially combative with the media? Do Did the fans like him? Was he... Was he someone that the fans got behind? Well, he took over in 92. Yeah. And the team changed. And we turned into a juggernaut. Mm -hmm. And it it coincided with He took over in the middle of the season, right? Yeah. Yeah. He took over from Casey Jones. Right. And and the team just changed, and we got really good. And we we got into the playoffs via the sixth seed, Mm -hmm. and we went all the way to the Western Conference Finals. And we traded for Perkins, and Perkins was this kind of unusual center who just would sit out on the corner and shoot threes. He's a modern-day player. Like well, We were doing the things that are happening in the NBA right now then. Yeah. We just weren't as all-in as they are Today. now when they feel like they have the kind of statistical backing to say, right. this is the right thing to do. But it was the most interesting team you'd ever seen. I mean, Sam Perkins was out there, and, and I want to talk more about about him, but he was out there shooting threes, and Kemp's Duncan inside, and Peyton and McMillan are doing their thing, and Kendall Gill, I mean, he was always kind of a, a little bit of a problem child from the moment we acquired him, but he was, he was a pretty dang good, you know, two guard, so we had a lot going on. Sam Perkins was a 6'9 center. Incredible. Yeah, he's a small ball center. I mean, he would play in today's NBA right away. I mean, he at one point with the uh, with the uh, with the Sonics, he was shooting upward of 40% from three. Perkins tries a three. It hits it. He shot 45% at one point from three. Yeah, he uh, was ridiculous. Yeah. We yeah. called him Big Smooth because he was the Big Smooth. <laughs> there was there was no question. And just, you know, you would see him around town. And I, I remember going to Green Lake one time. Yeah. And Green Lake is a little n- lake north of town. Okay. And, and it's, it's maybe a three-mile walk around it. And it's a real nice walk. Uh, it's real pleasant. And I, I was walking up, and I saw Sam Perkins coming out of the way. And there have been a lot of people who've taken stony, stony walks around Green Lake. <laughs> but nobody ever did it with so much style. As Sam Perkins. Sam Perkins. Yeah, they, I mean, and so we loved him because he was the big smooth because he always seemed like he was under the influence and he what? didn't care. He was just <laughs> just like corner three, corner three, corner Well, three. that was his whole essence. Like the way he played the game, he kind of played the game like he was a little stoned. Like, like I mean that in I the most complimentary, I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. I, I like, think he was. Yeah, like he just, he was never rattled. You know what I mean? Like he, he had a very even keel about him. He was very smooth very like you couldn't rattle him um and he was just yeah parked out there on the corner and shooting threes and that's your like fourth option it's a great fourth option yeah so we were talking about george carl yeah what was your what do you have any memories of him were were, were fans especially fond of george carl well i i mentioned the, the you, you series, were saying like there was i mentioned a the change, series right? against against the suns because yeah i think he won a lot of fans with that yeah. we saw what what could happen yeah and what happened the next year against denver and i, I i'm sure we're going to break that down mm-hmm. was frustrating but we we trusted him based on what happened with, with the, the Suns series so and so when it when it you know finally when, like we gave him a few years so that's 1992-93 that you're referencing with the Suns. 92-93 
Carl's first full season with the Sonics. They came into the playoffs as the third seed. They took the Suns to seven games it's in the Western seed, Conference Finals. Yep. And they kind of cemented themselves as a force to be reckoned with. After that very encouraging, but ultimately disappointing loss, Western Conference final loss to the Phoenix Suns. And that's Bar- Barkley's Suns, right? Yeah, that's Barkley. I mean, that's that's like... The last, the last person Jordan got to beat up with, beat up on before he went to go play baseball. I mean, no shame in losing to those guys. That's like the class. I mean, I, you know, I, I, am trying to put myself in the shoes of a Sonics fan. You know, it's the early nineties. You're in Seattle. It's like, all of a sudden you have this young team. You're out of the doldrums. It's like hope springs eternal. You take the, the, the Phoenix suns to seven games in the Western conference. Everything's coming up roses. The future is bright. So take us into that offseason, Jeremy. Yeah, so we we made some moves, and we we were pretty aggressive. And we traded Derek McKee, who was kind of a glue kind of culture player, for Detlef Schrempf, who was, for all of us Sonic fans, it was an an easy win. I mean, Detlef was 6'10", and he was from the University of Washington, and he was the reigning sixth man of the year. Incredible! And he could do everything. Yep. He, you know, he's a passer. He's a rebounder. He's a scorer. He was the perfect complementary player. And McKee had always been a little disappointing. He hadn't quite been the guy to kind of like. Everyone thought that he was going to be just a little better than he was. So that was a big move. And then the other thing is we traded Eddie Johnson. And Dana Barros. Yeah. Uh, Johnson's an amazing free throw shooter. Barros is an amazing three point shooter. Yeah. And we traded him for this plucky shooting guard from Illinois named Kendall Gill. We made those moves, and the team was awesome. Yeah. The team was like, we were the best team in the NBA. And Jordan had retired, yep. and it was all happening. And we went into the playoffs as the number one seed. It's 1993. The team is off to a hot start, right? They start 20, 26 and 3. They finish the year 63 and 19. They're the number one seed in the West. Peyton and Kemper all stars. The team's clicking. They're firing on all cylinders. I got to believe, Jeremy, you know, it's, it's, it's Hope Springs Eternal. It's the Pacific Northwest. Uh, tell me what it was like to be a, a Sonics fan at this time in Seattle. What was going through your head? How did it feel to be there on the ground at that time? So I think the thing you need to understand is that this was a super heady time to be a young person right. in the Pacific Northwest. So we were coming of age in the 90s in Seattle, which was pretty much the best thing possible. Like yeah. Grunge had been invented. The Mariners had Ken Griffey Jr., Randy Johnson, um, Buner. Edgar Martinez. It mattered. They like, were, Seattle mattered. It was yeah, like well, a cultural... It was starting to matter a lot. And the Sonics were turning into something of a juggernaut. And we had an opportunity with Jordan being out of the mix. And then things got kind of uncomfortable in April of that year. Yeah. Kurt Cobain killed himself. Right. And then a few weeks later... Seattle lost to Denver. Game five. It was a few weeks after Cobain. Cobain. It was less than a month. Wow. And for young people in Seattle at that time, it was devastating. It was like, there's no, there's no comparing the two things. Like, Cobain was huge. And 
the Sonics losing really, really sucked, but nobody died. But at the same time, it was like a one-two punch. And it was a precursor of everything that would come later on over the course of the next 10 years. Wow. We should talk about the series and exactly what happened. You know, the Sonics were leading the series two games to nothing against the Kembe Matumbo and the lowly Denver Nuggets. The Nuggets were tied for the worst regular season record of any team in the playoffs that year. Um, the Sonics went to Denver and they were winning two nothing in the series. This is back when uh, first round series were just five games. Yeah, they changed it because of this series. So the Sonics go to get, go to Denver, leading 2-0, and the Nuggets suddenly had new life, right? They were like a completely different team. They're playing with a carefree confidence, a swagger. There's no pressure. The, the, and they just, clock, they just clock the Sonics, and they even the series all of a sudden, two games to two. And they went and back. It's yeah. important to note that even though the Sonics won game two, there was a moment where... Gary Payton and Ricky Pierce, who was an important scorer on the team, started bickering. And it was, it was kind of a breaking point. And what's important about this is that there was so much grand wizardry from the general managers. They all thought that they had it figured out. They were going to figure out the perfect combination, the perfect 12-man you know, roster. It's all going to work out. But it's possible that they outthought themselves by trading away Derek McKee because Derek McKee was a cultural glue that tied everything together. And he helped keep Gary Payton in check. He helped make things work. And Payton even said later on that they missed him. And so the, the thing with him and Pierce where they got sideways and then nothing ever went well after that, that was potentially a chemistry mistake that went back to the trade in the offseason. So the series is tied two games to two. The Nuggets find new life at home. They go back to Seattle for a deciding game five. And the game goes to overtime. And uh, it's, it's the shot-blocking heroics of Dikembe Mutombo who wins the game and, of course, gives us one of the more iconic images in NBA history falling to the ground, right, in adulation. As the clock expires, he's cradling the ball in these gigantic hands of his, yeah. laughing to himself as the, sh- as, as the shocked and dismayed Sonic fans look on in just, like, sheer horror. And uh, Matumbo actually had two critical blocks late in overtime to help seal the win. Um, Jeremy, as, as a Sonics fan, I have to believe, like, was this the, was this the lowest moment in terms of on-court stuff that happened, you know, putting the ownership stuff aside. And we'll get to this in another minute or two. You know, eventually the team would go on and go to the finals and play Jordan and the Bulls and whatever, whatever. But was this loss in the first round, um, given everything you mentioned about Cobain and and what was going on with with the culture in the city, was, was this loss even harder to swallow than what eventually would happen with the Bulls? I don't think you can compare anything to losing right. in the big game. Yeah. But this was very hard. Yeah. And I don't think people knew what to do with it. I think everyone knew that we were 
primed. We had the players, we had the coach, we had everything in place. We even had the ownership, you know? I mean, it was, it was everything you need. So I think we all thought that it was going to work out. You know, and I, 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 when I think about kind of high hopes for sport franchises, I, I think about the Indianapolis Colts in particular. You know, how could you not turn core Peyton Manning into multiple Super Bowls? Well, we saw it turned into one. Yeah. They were lucky. Yeah. So it's funny how it works. The, the windows are very small. Do you remember where you were for the game? Do you remember where you watched it? Any of the specifics? Yeah, my uh, parents' basement. Yeah, we were all we were all struggling with it. Everyone was optimistic that you're going to get it done. It just didn't seem right that we would lose that. That game. you could lose it. Yeah, didn't seem like it made any sense. So it was. And the the thing in retrospect that is fascinating is that was the opportunity that Jordan was out of the league. Yeah. Houston was strong, but they had not yet traded for Clyde Drexler. Mm-hmm. It, was, it had not happened yet. So they, they were not an obvious super team. This is, this is as we were kind of building up to the idea of super teams, right? Right. You know, I, I think Jordan deserves a lot of blame for what LeBron did later in terms of super teams. But um, it all started happening around this time. So 93-94, who, was this Olajuwon's run? Yeah, yeah, it was, but it was before they traded. Oh God, of course, how could I forget this? This was on the Rock, when the Rockets defeated the Knicks. God, so much was happening. Was X-Man on that team? No, X-Man had been traded. Yeah, this of course was the same NBA Finals I remember watching as OJ Simpson was being chased down the 405 by the LAPD. Back to the Sonics, so you know, it's, it's a bitter collapse, might be one of the greatest upsets in the history of the NBA. Um, the first time a number eight seed defeated a number one seed. Some of the guys on the team, Vincent Askew, Bill Cartwright, Kendall Gill, Byron Houston, Irvin Johnson, Sean Kemp, Nate McMillan, Gary Payton, Sam Perkins, Detlef Schremp. After the kind of the shocking exit of, of 94, the team comes back, finishes 57-25. They're the fourth seed, and they, they have a first-round exit to the Lakers. Yeah, the, the big thing that happened that year is that Sean Kemp signed an extension. Right. And it was a contract that probably seemed really good at the time and turned out to be... A big... Not so good. Yeah. It had... It would it rear had, its ugly head. It had particular aspects of it that would become extremely problematic so the sonics finish 57 and 25 they're the fourth seed they have a first round exit to the lakers in four games after the season kendall gill is traded back to the hornets and uh, for hersey hawkins for hersey hawkins sweet shooting hersey and we traded for every single charlotte hornets guard except for you know (laughs) except for (laughs) yeah the guy that one guy during during the off season of 95 96 the sonics go out and get hersey hawkins right from the charlotte hornets which you mentioned they have a a 14 game winning streak between march and february they just go on a roll they go 64 and 18 sean kemp and gary payton are all-stars gary payton is defensive player of the year 
they they blitz through the playoffs, right? They uh, they take out the Kings in the first round. They sweep the defending champ Houston Rockets in four games. They defeat the Utah the Utah Jazz in seven games. And then they square off with the uh, Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls in the NBA Finals. So, Jeremy, what do you remember about this matchup, this squad, the team? I remember a strong sense of feeling like we'd lost our opportunity because Jordan was back. It felt hopeless? It felt hopeless. He just finished 72-10, and 10 and he'd gotten... You know the the very helpful services of Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman. Yeah. and so it's like you got the best defensive rebounding forward in the league. You've got the best second fiddle in the league already, Scottie Pippen, who had pretty much shit the bed as a lead player at that point. Right, and Jordan was back, He's and still it didn't, Tony Kukoc. Right, yeah, he was there. I mean, it didn't matter like who the other Steve players Kerr. were. It was yeah. it was. We'd established that they were a juggernaut. They were the best team in the history of the league. And the year before, they'd been garbage. Like, they'd, they'd had Pippen sitting on the bench pouting. So it felt like a lost opportunity, but it also felt like we were ready to fight. And we did it. And we, we got into it. We were the only team to beat them three times that year. And beat them once in the regular season and twice in the playoffs. We took him to game six. That's right. And so the Sonics fell in an 0-3 hole, but they clawed back. They won their next two, and they fall in game six in Chicago. I mean, it, 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 it sounds like they were just outmatched, right, like versus Jordan, Pippen, and Rodman. I mean, they Jordan comes back out of retirement with on a mission, right? Like he had this embarrassment with the baseball, and he just came back possessed, and, uh, and the Sonics fell victim. On to the next year. Yes. Anything else? <laughs> 96-97. Again, the first seed. They finished 57-25. and 25. They lose in the second round to the Rockets in seven games. Fuck the Rockets. 97-98, 61-21. Again, the first seed. They lose in the second round to the Lakers in five games. We knew it was slipping away. This is like after the Mariners won 116 games, and we were like, okay, we got it. Next season, you're like... Yeah, it's that maybe we got it. It's like, no, it, it's you don't that moment it. when you realize you're never going to get over the hump. Yeah, it's like oh, we're really talented. The hump got but, you, but we're never going to get over the hump, and the hump got yeah. me. Yeah. So towards the end of the ninety six ninety seven season, you mentioned this before. Sean Kemp um, became kind of disgruntled and frustrated, and he was being frankly grossly underpaid for his production. Right, he was locked into a long term contract. He's making about $3 million a year. And because of the salary cap rules at the time, the Sonics weren't able to renegotiate with him. So also kind of further infuriating him was the fact that management dropped $33 million over seven years on a free agent center named Jim McElvain. Yes. Now Kemp sat out the first three weeks of training camp and he started clashing with George Carl, and he started showing up late to practices and team flights. And then rumors started circulating that he had some drinking problems. And he was seen out on the town late at night at bars, late at night, uh, you know, these evenings late at night uh, before afternoon games. Jeremy, do you remember Kemp butting heads with management? Where, where did the fan... Where do fans fall in all of this? Like, I don't know, did sports radio exist in Seattle? Like, were fans pro-Kemp? Were they pro-ownership? Did people want to see him traded? Like, where, 
How did fans feel about this? I, I'm, I'm not sure I remember where sports radio was, but I remember where a lot of us were, which was, oh, we're signing a center, and he's going to help us, and it's going to be okay. Right. And then, oh, he's going to make more than Sean Kemp? That's screwed that up. That probably doesn't seem smart. Yeah, Jim McElvain, like, you know, I think they interview him in the Sonics gate. Like, he recognizes what he did. But the more important person. I mean, who, he just signed a contract. Like, they yeah, just. Yeah, well, they, you know, I would, would sign it yeah, too. Yeah, anyone would. Um, but, like, the more important person who acknowledges responsibility is Wally Walker. Yeah. Who was the GM at that point. And he, he said he, it's a mistake. He admits he made, he made yep. a mistake. Yeah. And he, he screwed the whole thing up. And so, so I, I, I hope that he um, never sleeps a good night ever again. But let me say something yes. about Sean Kemp. Okay. What you said, yeah, everyone was concerned about, you know, where he was going to go, what was going on, drug issues, so on. Um, the, the stories were that he would be in downtown Seattle shooting three throws. Just like middle of the night. And I think the guy had demons. And the worst thing that ever happened to him was the NBA lockout. So at the height of his powers, age 27, the Sonics moved Sean Kemp to the Cavs in a, three, in a three-way deal for Vin Baker. You know, this is, this is part of the tragedy. You know, like I, I, I think like that the, there is something very tragic about the Sonics and Sean Kemp like falls into that narrative, right? So... Kemp helped the Cavs get to the playoffs uh, in 97, 98, to his credit. He was an all-star that year. He put up his usual 20 points, nine rebounds. But the following year, 98, 99, there was a labor dispute and the NBA season was cut in half due to a lockout. Even as the NBA plays its most important games of the season, negotiations are ongoing between the league and the Players Association for a new collective bargaining agreement. The current contract expires June 30th, and if a new agreement is not in place by then, a lockout or possibly a moratorium on league business could begin. So when training camp resumed in October of that year, management and fans were shocked to see that Sean Kemp had put on upwards of 50 pounds. Cavs GM Wayne Embry later revealed in a book that he wrote that um, that while they listed Kemp at 6'10", 280, he actually tipped the scales at 315 pounds. If you, if you know Sean Kemp, if you remember Sean Kemp in his heyday as the Rain Man flying through the sky with the Sonics, it is incomparable to think of him weighing 315 pounds. So suddenly Sean Kemp's athleticism was lost. You know, he's no longer this high flyer. He had to resort to a mid-range game. And, you know, again, like to, to the guy's credit, and this speaks to how talented he was, frankly, he continued to put up numbers. He put up 20 points and nine rebounds in that lockout season. Oh, almost obese. He put up numbers, and, and he wasn't dunking. It was all mid-range, and that really speaks to how talented he was, frankly, that he was able to kind of just adjust his game on the fly. I think it's worth noting that he wasn't the only one who got fat during that lockout. And the other end of that trade, yep. Vin Baker, man, I loved Vin Baker. Yeah, He was a seven-foot guy from Hartford mm -hmm. who could shoot threes. He was 
another guy who was very very progressive player mm-hmm. and was amazing in his heyday and when we traded for him like the first season he was good and then the lockout happens and he also got fat because guess who else has a drinking problem and i can't blame him like it's just like we, it, the whole no. situation was cursed it was like we had two problematic amazing power forwards who got traded for each other and they both there is ended up like a tragic snake bit there's like a tragic symmetry there so ironically if you want to call it ironic or just sadly um literally the exact same thing that was going on with sean kemp happened for the very guy that he was traded for vin baker so vin baker arrives for the supersonics in the sean kemp trade uh, and during the lockout season, he comes back and all of a sudden he's ballooned to 300 pounds and he reveals that uh, he has a drinking problem. He goes to rehab and, um, you know, he was, ve- and to his credit, he was very c- candid about his issues with, uh, with George Carl or Paul Westfall. I forget who was the coach at the time. Um, and yeah, he says, you Carl know, gets fired right around here. Okay. So he says, you know, or he says to, he says to Wally Walker, he says like, Look, to be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't think we were coming back. I didn't think we were coming back, coming back out of the lockout. So I've just been eating and drinking, like, and 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 not keeping up my conditioning because I didn't think we were coming back for a solid year. And um, yeah, so uh, back to Kemp. Um, in two, in the year two thousand, Kemp was uh, so he spent a few years with the Cavs. He was eventually traded to Portland. He's reunited with Trader Bob, Bob Whitsett, the GM at, of the Blazers at this point. And, um, you know, while Kemp's game and his body are failing him at this point, it was really the demons of his personal life that were, you know, taking a toll. Kemp Kent struggled with his weight, with his, you know, diminished role on the court. At this point now, he's only playing 10 or 15 minutes a night. You know, this is, this is a guy that was used to being a star attraction. All of a sudden, now he's a 10-minute-a-night role player. And he struggled with cocaine and alcohol abuse. And during his first season with the Jailblazers, he entered drug rehab. And uh, two years later, he was waived. And aside from a year with the Orlando Magic and some failed comeback attempts, suddenly Sean Kemp was gone from the league. And uh, it was just like a really a sad story. Like It's a sad story that does and does not make much sense um and it, it it oddly like mirrors the what happened with the sonics and they're just all one day they're just gone from seattle so you know jeremy my question for you is like does does kemp have a relationship with the city of seattle today like how do fans feel about this guy i know he still lives in the city he wrote a, a Players' Tribune piece the last year or two, and um, you know he expressed all of his fondness for the city, and he still has a home there, still lives there. I guess um, I have to imagine there's a ton of goodwill between the fans and Kemp. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, no one holds it against him, and and I think it's it's important to kind of get a sense of how many things Seattle folks lost over the course of a very yeah. short period. I mean, we lost Kurt Cobain, the Sonics lost, just a, 
a series. It wasn't even that big of a deal. But then we lost Ken Griffey Jr. We lost Randy Johnson. We lost Alex Rodriguez. We lost Sean Kemp. We lost Gary Payton. Then we lost our whole team. We lost all that. So that's kind of a lot in 10 years. Yeah, I, I have to be honest with you. I was not prepared for that. Like, I, I yeah. Like, I, yeah. What's, what's really painful is if you look at the slow, cold death the last few years and what really happened and how things were taken from us. So the next chapter in the story, I think, uh, is is that period from 1998 till 2000. Um, and, and you know, I, I kind of call this chapter, you know, struggles and, and, and Durant. Ba- basically, like, mediocrity and leading to Durant. So, you know, in, in the interest of time and keeping our audience listening to the podcast, um, you know, there were there were moments from 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 that decade of ninety eight to till two thousand and eight. Um, you know there there was a trip to the Western Conference Finals. There was the departure of Gary Payton to the Milwaukee Bucks. The the arrival of Richard Lewis and Ray Allen. Right. Um, but I I I would say outside looking in, you tell me if I'm wrong. The decade of you know from ninety eight till two thousand eight is largely characterized by mediocrity. Right, I I think that it is characterized by something that could have been beautiful, yeah. That turned into something else. So you you mentioned Richard Lewis, yeah, and so he was yet another player that was straight out of high school, right? And he was a project, and he is the kind of person that if he played in your team today. You'd be like, this is a top twenty player in your in the league. He's an ideal player He's for the ideal today's three and D yeah. player. Yeah. And one of the things that we loved most about Richard Lewis was his nickname. Which was? Meat and cheese. Because <laughs> you know what he liked to do? He liked to go to he liked to go to McDonald's and he would just get he'd get some some cheeseburgers. Uh-huh. But he all he wanted was meat and cheese. Wow. So he was he was a baller. Yeah. And he was living off of that. Wow. So he was a player. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we were hopeful about Vin Baker, and then he got drunk and fat. Yep. Um, we had some other interesting players. Uh, I really was a big fan of Brent Berry. That's right. And he played there from 99 to 04. Um, what's kind of funny is, you know, he left the team on 04, and then in 05, I got in a car accident in front of his old house. And if Brent Berry had still owned the house... I would have been screwed. But because he had sold it to this guy who was mowing his lawn, who was there as a witness, I proved to the insurance company that it was not my fault. <laughs> so it was, I was, he was like, you know this is Brent Berry's house? I'm like, yes, go. <laughs> um, so things were, you know, things were still okay. And then in, in 2002, Peyton, he holds out. And in 2003, we right. trade him for Ray Allen. Right. Uh, and the rights to Luke Ridenour, which I'm a Duck fan, but give me a friggin' break. Um, but we had Ray Allen. Ray Allen's pretty good. Ray Allen is pretty good. I mean, if you're going to have to depart with a legend like Gary Payton, getting a return of Ray Allen's pretty good. Yeah. I was still pissed. I'm sure. I was super I'm pissed. I'm sure. I'm sure. 
So, and then in like 0405, we somehow win the Pacific Division. We were 52 and 30. And then 2005, August 2005, Hurricane Katrina comes through and messes up the New Orleans season. Okay. And then that team goes to Oklahoma City okay. for the next few months. And we've learned that Okies love NBA. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's help the audience here. So at this point, the Charlotte Hornets, uh, Charlotte is deemed they can't support an NBA franchise. They've since relocated to New Orleans. They're now playing as the New Orleans Hornets. Hurricane Katrina happens, devastates the city of New Orleans. They can't play in the city. Of course, the the franchise needs to keep the season going. The city of Oklahoma raises their hand, says Clay Bennett. The city of Oklahoma raises their hand, says... It wasn't yet Clay Bennett. It wasn't Clay Bennett yet. Okay. city of Oklahoma raises their hand, says, hey, we have an arena. You go, we'll be good Samaritans. Why don't you guys come over here, play a couple games here. We have a bunch of people who love basketball, come over here. We'll watch your games. The story of how we ended up here, I think, has been well chronicled. It was uh, a little bit like landing, like, uh, I think, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. We're very fortunate to land in a wonderful place uh, where we were greeted by a terrific community of government leaders and corporate leaders, one of whom is the Oklahoman. When we moved our games from Louisiana back to Oklahoma, we needed to get out the word quickly. I think in a perfect world, you'd want about 18 months. Um, I think a, a year probably works well, so to do this in, in 65 days was miraculous. David Thompson and the others at the paper uh, said whatever they needed to do, they would do. Together, we were able to introduce the Hornets in Oklahoma City to a national audience, and we benefited from extensive daily coverage. But I think what the Oklahoma provided that I didn't anticipate that was so valuable for us as a business was what we could do with some of the other uh, marketing opportunities through direct mail, e-marketing, uh, custom advertising and custom publishing. For example, we have a, a really beautiful 100-page uh, coffee table book that we are producing with the Oklahoma, something that I wouldn't have expected I could have done with a newspaper partner. And so the uh, city of Oklahoma City plays Good Samaritan, and they allow the Hornets to uh, finish the season in Oklahoma. Little did we know. Mm -hmm. And right around this time, there's a coaching collapse going on with the Sonics. Nate McMillan, who was our homegrown... Mr. Sonic. Mr. Sonic, Nate McMillan, our homegrown leader, goes to Portland, mm -hmm. which was very awkward. Nobody felt good about it. Uh, it was made more awkward because his main assistant, Dwayne Casey, had already gone to coach Minnesota. So suddenly we got nobody. So he was replaced by Bob Weiss, who went 13 and 17. God. Then Bob Hill, who went 22 and 30. And eventually by PJ Carlismo, mm -hmm. at which point we knew that we were in a computer simulation <laughs> in which a bunch of people in Oklahoma were trying to punch us in the balls over and over and over again. Yeah. So uh, Carlismo was preceded by the big move on October 25th, 2006 when Clayton Bennett bought the team. All right, we're going to hit pause right there. That's part one of the Seattle Supersonics. My name's Chris Wendelkin. This is On The Line. You can tweet your Sonics memories to me at onthelinepod. 
Uh, send me any of your questions at onthelinepod at gmail.com. We are live on the web. Visit the website onthelinepodcast.com. Please rate, review, subscribe to the show in Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Have a happy and healthy start to 2019, and I'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>